Hello, welcome back to our podcast, One Day You'll Thank Me. I am your host, Dr. Tara Egan, and I am here with my co-host, Anna. Hello. We have a great episode for you today. We are having a guest on, and her name is Ashley Francis, and she is a licensed therapist and coach. She has a private practice in Charlotte, North Carolina, and she has a specialty area in working with individuals with anxiety, teens, and women in particular is her strengths. And I've gotten to know Ashley over the last year or so, and we've had a chance to work closely together both as clinicians as well as just women who own their own business. So she definitely comes from a very different perspective than I do as far as how we are trained to support people with any kind of mental health issue. So I really hope you enjoy her input here. I think she's got a lot of really important things to say. This episode, we're going to be talking about high achievers with anxiety. This is definitely a topic that me and my mom both relate to. Don't you agree? I do. Right before this episode started, you (laughs) made us start at three different times because you didn't like how I said hello. (laughs) You say it sometimes a little bit weird. I think I say lovely every single time. Oh, you're so lovely, Mom. (laughs) Well, we're going to get started, so stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. And welcome back. We're here with Ashley Francis. Ashley, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. You know my co-host here, Anna. Hey. Hi, Anna. So we are here today to talk about anxiety. And this is a topic that's really relatable for both me and Anna because we're both high achievers. And so Mm -hmm. before we really get started, we should take a minute to talk about the different types of anxiety because I think that a lot of times the type of anxiety we personally experience is what we think anxiety consists of. So I have a client who has panic attacks and that's his impression of what anxiety is, is there it's panic attacks. And if you're not actively in a panic attack, you're not experiencing anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so to really have him understand the different types of anxiety has been something I've had to work pretty extensively with. So I wanted to get your perspective, how you define anxiety before we shift into our, our conversation that specifically covers high achieving anxiety. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I I think it's important to bring attention to the fact that anxiety in and of itself is a good thing. It's our body's natural response to stress. It is what helps us to keep us alive. It helps us tend to our everyday duties. It helps us to concentrate. It helps us to stay alert. It helps us stay on task and be able to see those tasks through. So it actually works for us. And another function that it also helps to do is to increase self-awareness. So for instance, if we are witnessing bullying or someone being harmed, it brings our attention to a pain point that something is wrong here and it can propel us into action so that we can right some sort of wrong. So we need to feel anxiety in order to stay on top of our game and able to achieve and to be able to progress. Uh, And the way that I like to distinguish between anxiety that works for us and anxiety that works against us is by looking at it from the standpoint of productive anxiety versus unproductive anxiety. So productive anxiety is more related to what I just described. Unproductive anxiety is when it starts to work against us. And this is more so characterized by feeling bad about ourselves. So this is more having to do with the not enoughs. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm just never enough. 
and it leaves us feeling empty. We don't feel good about ourselves. We may have a, a loss in the sense of identity. We don't really know who we are. It's fraught with a lot of self-deprecating thoughts, and we, we just feel very low. And sometimes in the worst cases, it can even lead to thoughts of suicide. So that's how I like to frame things in the beginning to, to really be able to understand that anxiety is a good thing. It's just when it, it works against us in this context that it starts to become problematic. I know that when I work with clients, I'll kind of show it on a number line and I'll say, okay, well, you sort of want to stay in a zone between like a four and a six or maybe a three and a seven. Mm -hmm. Whereas if your anxiety point is at a one, that can look a lot like lethargy or apathy or avoidance behavior. Right. Whereas if you're up at an eight, nine, or 10, your anxiety is so high that it's probably impacting your functionality mm -hmm. and is, you know, throwing your body into so much stress that you're not going to be efficient. You're going to feel like you're failing. You're going to feel like you're treading water and getting nowhere. So one of the things I coach my clients on and, and their parents is, to, all right, what can we do to keep your anxiety not too low or you're, you're stepping away from life and not so high that you're in a constant state of stress. And so you stay in that functional zone. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, fantastic. That's a very good analogy. Really in that eight to 10 range is, I would even say maybe seven to 10 range, we might qualify as an anxiety disorder. And I think it's important to recognize that anxiety is the most common mental health disorder in the world. It affects 40 million people. That's 18% of the U.S. population. And the World Health Organization postulates that one in 13 people are affected by this globally. And two-thirds of these people are not receiving treatment. So we've got a whole lot of people that are in that 7 to 10 range that are suffering, and they're not getting the help that they need. So I think it's also really important to bring attention to the fact that these things are happening widespread. It's a pandemic in and of itself and that people don't have to suffer, that there's a solution to this and that it, it's really about being able to identify what the symptoms are and when it becomes a disorder. So that, that seven to 10 range, what I like to usually add is that if you're feeling those self-deprecating thoughts and feeling bad about yourself, but not good enough, most days of the week, for a period of six months or longer, that's the time to start looking for some help. So either talking to a trusted friend or a mental health professional, that's the time to do it. And I do feel that a lot of parents sort of glorify anxiety, or I don't even want to say glorify, like normalize it. Like if you're not in a constant state of being frazzled, then that may imply that you're not working hard enough. Mm. And there's a lot of pressure on that. Like if you're like, oh no, life's going pretty smooth and I've got just about what I need on my plate these days and everybody's able to plug along with their schedules and feel relatively well adjusted. Mm -hmm. Like I think sometimes we can then send ourselves a message that we're not doing enough. So that's concerning for me as a person who works with parents parents are, are almost looking for that state of being on high alert all the time for them to feel like they're doing enough. Yeah. And here's the tricky part is that anxiety specifically for high achieving people, but also teens in particular, is that it's super hard to see. And it's not your fault if it's hard for you to see, because part of the way that this this mechanism works is to live in secrecy, that the person internalizes everything. They take on the weight of the world and they're sort of primed to think that 
I need to take all this on because I can. And they're the internalizers. They're the ones that, that take on the stressors of maybe from their parents, but also from their peers. They may be the person that everybody comes to, but they have a hard time asking for help. And not only that, they also have a hard time taking the help as well because they, they've taken on this persona of being a perfectionist and a perfectionist doesn't need help. I need for you to see me as perfect on the outside. But the, the problem with that is that they're, they're oftentimes dying on the inside and it's, it's really hard, but the, the person is so committed to having this picture of success on the outside that that's kind of the whole point. They don't want you to see that they're suffering. So it's, they're actually kind of going out of their way to show you that, hey, I'm, I'm actually doing better than, than I am on the inside. So there's a lot of pride and, and identity wrapped up with being a person that has your stuff together all the time. Absolutely. Okay. So what you've been saying has made me realize that this actually kind of reminds me of a lot like of high school and how like some people they're in class and they have everything done but then like they go into the halls and you can tell that they're really really stressed and really like overwhelmed and that someone's trying to talk to them and they can't keep it straight and they're like zoned out because it looks like in the classroom that they are have everything together they have everything worked out but then when they actually in reality are really really stressed and overwhelmed so do you feel like that, Ashley, would be a high achiever? So they take pride in having their schoolwork all situated and, you know, not missing any deadlines and pleasing the teacher. But then in a less structured moment, she's able to see that these are kids who are starting to crumble a little bit, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah. So, so Anna, are you asking if you're the peer and you're wanting to help your other peer, like you're seeing this happen within them? Yeah, you said that like a lot of people struggle with this. And so is it a lot more relevant than I think? Absolutely. And I think too, with Anna, I mean, she is in that group who's a high achiever. She's one of the kids who's getting straight A's and doing a sport and taking on babysitting jobs and helping out around the house and things. And so mm -hmm. I think also she's attracted to peers who are like that too. I mean, that's a like-minded peer group of high achievers. Do you think that people who are high achievers who have anxiety, like, do you think that they're more likely to be around other people who have anxiety too? Oh, absolutely. Oh, wow. Yeah, like attracts like. And that, that's pretty much across the board, whether it's a high achiever or, or other types of personalities, that we're always attracted to people that we perceive to be similar to us. It's a survival mechanism that I need to be aligned with other people that understand me and get me and give me a sense of belonging. Because in the past, many, many years ago, if we weren't part of a group, we would literally die. And that's a part of us as being humans that's still within us. So we actively seek out both on a conscious and subconscious level, people that are like us. And there may be things about that person that you can't even really put your finger on. Maybe you can't verbalize it. Maybe it's not completely something that you realize. But it, it's also in their body language. It's in their mannerisms. Like you can tell when somebody is feeling stress just by how they're acting. Maybe their rate of breath is more. Maybe they're shaking or they're trembling. You can see those things. And we just kind of naturally gravitate towards those people as it is. Mm -hmm. And I also think it validates our choice to be that way, right? I mean, like, if I'm a high-achieving person and get self-esteem from being this way, from accomplishing 
then I'm going to want to be around other people who are similar and make that behavior normalized versus being around someone who's like, hey, why are you making such a big deal out of thing? Definitely. Why are you always running, 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 running? Mm -hmm. So I think that can be an attraction for people too. When I look around my world, I hang out with high achievers. You know, I've been married twice. Both of my husbands are high achievers. They're ambitious. They're motivated. They're great at initiating tasks and follow through. Mm -hmm. And I obviously see a lot of those characteristics in my kids too, but it makes me think, okay, well, how much is this works for them and makes them feel good about themselves, makes them productive, makes them feel competent versus is it a lot of pressure? Is it something that is more of a burden or at least a burden sometimes? I feel like I have both. Like I have some friends who are on top of their schoolwork and who definitely get more stressed out than others. But then I also have some friends who are a little less, they don't care as much about something. Hmm. A little less conscientious. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. I think you're also very open-minded and accepting of people. And, you know, people are going to feel comfortable around you mm -hmm. being themselves, even if it doesn't look just like you. Yeah. Well, and people are made up of many different things. So you may be drawn to this group of people because it satisfies certain characteristics within you, but that's not who you are all of the time. We play different roles in different environments. Who we are in school is going to be different from who we are at home or in church or sports. So we may have different commonalities just depending on the environment that we're in. And it's actually more healthy for you to have that variety of friends in the, those different environments because you never know what sort of adversity or problems are going to come up. And maybe one group of friends is going to be better at helping you through that versus the others. Yeah, that's relatable. I definitely see that. Do you feel like, Ashley, that individuals who are these high achievers, do you feel like they are more likely to get into like a caretaking role? Absolutely. So especially for the teenagers who have not established a, a definitive sense of identity, it's just age specific, it's developmentally appropriate to be trying on different roles and, and different identities to figure out which one fits with you. There's a tremendous amount of confusion and some things are going to work, some things are going to not. The high achiever, oftentimes, as we were saying earlier, comes from an environment, a family environment, where the parents, or at least one of the parents, is also a high achiever. So what tends to happen is the, the teenager, as we we're saying, internalizes these things, but they're not very vocal because of that. And so they become the peacekeeper. They're the ones that feel like if I'm well behaved, then that's going to translate to being liked and being accepted. It's going to sort of level out the problems that are in the, the family and the household. Maybe there's conflict going on between the parents and that child feels like, well, if I'm a rule follower and I do everything that I need to do to be a good girl or be a good boy, then that's gonna fix the problems between my parents. And the problem is that that's just not true because those are the problems that need to be fixed by the parents, not the child. And there again, that sort of reinforces that suffering and silence paradigm because they wanna be the peacekeepers. And they, at minimum, don't want to be a reason that there is more conflict. Like, even if mm -hmm. they, on some level, understand that they're not going to remediate conflict mm -hmm. or stress, they at least don't want to be part of the problem. Right. One phrase that I use with both parents and teens, especially young women, is I call it the curse of the competent woman. And well, I'll say, when you're a competent woman and things look like they come easy to you, 
you can manage that problem, you do well in a crisis, you are detail-oriented, you have a reasonably pleasant personality, people look to you to continue to solve their problems. They will look to you as a source of strength, and they will forget that you have moments of vulnerability. So if you're that competent woman, expectations can raise and raise and raise for you, not only how you view yourself, but how others view you. And then if you have a hard time or you stumble, the fear is you're going to have really let down a lot of people, that you're going to fall off a pedestal. Yes. And that will translate into having issues with boundaries because the, the high achiever has a hard time saying no, that they've kind of been painted into this role of being peacekeeper or caretaker or the competent person. They always have it together. Oh, they can take it. I'm making this assumption that, oh, they've got all their problems figured out. So I can take this to her because she she's calm, she's competent, and she can take all these things. But because that high achiever has a hard time pushing back and saying, no, this is too much for me, it's very easy for him or her to become overwhelmed and start internalizing those self-deprecating thoughts. I'm not good enough or I can't help them enough. And they feel like a failure. That makes sense. Hey, this will be a good time for us to take a little break. We'll be right back. Welcome Welcome to Moe's. Make any night taco night with a build-your-own taco kit from Moe's. Each kit comes with your choice of two proteins, tortillas, rice, beans, plenty of toppings, and as always, chips and salsa are free. You can feed the whole family for only $34.99. Order online or through Moe's app for curbside, pickup, or delivery. Make family dinner fun with Moe's Southwest Grill. Seriously, hon, bring home a taco kit tonight. Yep, I'm on it. Now, can you explain a little bit more about what you mean by healthy boundaries? So especially in a teen, right? Because as adults, we have more freedom to interpret what it means for us as individuals to have healthy boundaries, whereas teens, they don't have as much control over their lives as far as where they live or the rules of their parents or if they have access to the car or what their teachers say. So what might be some things that teens should be thinking about or parents should be thinking about on behalf of their teens as far as boundary setting? So I think one of the biggest things is being able to speak your truth. And that is is not as easy as it may seem for the high achiever who's used to keeping everything inside. So it takes some practice and it takes a tremendous amount of self-awareness. So being able to get into their bodies and notice what anxiety feels like for them, because it's not a one size fits all, being able to notice that maybe the butterflies in the stomach or the heart beating faster or the, the palms going sweaty, that's what anxiety feels like to me. Being able to understand that this is what happens to me and the sort of thoughts and feelings that run through my mind as well when I'm feeling these types of anxiety is key. And then being able to to breathe, be able to reset yourself, that breathing is really important so that you are allowing the emotional parts of the brain to calm down and the cognitive parts of the brain, the rational parts of the brain to come back online. And then once we've been able to reset that a little bit, we start to reframe those thoughts. So taking the the negative and turning it into the positive. So if you've got a, a, a big test that's coming up, you may have yourself convinced that oh, I'm going to fail. It's going to go poorly and I'm going to fail the class. I'm never going to get into a good college. Well, first of all, it's just not true. 
So just being able to reframe it into the, the context of this is not true. That's not what's going to happen. And then putting yourself in a line of positivity because the studies show that if you put a positive spin on it, even if you don't believe it, your outcome is likely to be more positive in that way. So I think as far as the boundaries go, it's getting to know thyself, know yourself very well. That's the first step. But then once you've been able to accomplish that, it then becomes a part of speaking up and asking for what you need. So if something is off, your intuition is telling you something is wrong here. I don't feel good. I'm tired of being on the hamster wheel. I'm tired of punishing myself. I'm headed down a bad road. That's a time to start speaking up for yourself expressing to your brother or sister that I, I don't like what you just said there or being able to try and push back on your parents and say that this doesn't feel good to me. It doesn't feel fair to me. Getting in that habit of being able to express your opinion can go very, very far for the high achiever who kind of feels like they've had a muzzle on maybe for, uh, for a short amount of time, but it could also be for a long amount of time. So it gives them that power that they need to be able to start I start harnessing some self-esteem and self-worth and start fighting back against the negative aspects of the, the unproductive anxiety. One of the themes I'm hearing you say, and I have to admit, I don't relate to it, but I think if I think back to my adolescence, I hundred percent would relate to it, which is the negative self-talk, you know, like I'm going to fail at this or no one's going to like me if I don't do this. And I don't have that. I'm a high achiever and I definitely have like there's a wheel spinning all the time in my head of something I could be doing to help someone or be more productive or use my time more efficiently or service my clients better, whatever it is. Like that's always reeling, but I don't necessarily think that there's a possibility I can't accomplish it, mm -hmm. which, which as an adult serves me well, because I think I do default to competent self-talk. But when I think back to how I was as an adolescent, just even this conversation, like just in this 30 seconds I've been speaking and I can picture sitting in my room or whatever and feeling pressure about something, whether it was self-imposed or it was something, you know, maybe my parents had placed on me, but I remember feeling like there's a chance I'm not going to do this well, or someone's going to be mad. I'm going to screw this up. And I think that back then that high achieving anxiety was just more hurtful. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I feel like because I don't tend to have those negative thoughts, the, the biggest consequence for me is just keeping me awake at night because of just busy thoughts. Right. So Yeah. I notice that self-power and self-strength is like a really big part of it. Being able to stand up for yourself. Sometimes that can be difficult, but it sounds like it's a lot more difficult with high achieving people with anxiety. Well, and teenagers, yeah. you know, because I mean, I'm 43 years old. I've had a lot of practice at this, whereas mm -hmm. now, Anna, <laughs> let me ask you, do you relate to what Ashley's saying about the negative self-talk? I mean, yeah, definitely. I think that there are some times when I can get down on myself and think like, oh, I'm not very knowledgeable on this topic that we're doing in class. Maybe maybe I won't do as well as I should do on this test and maybe it's going to bring my grade down. And I'm at, like, sometimes I just like kind of go on like, a spin off of, well, if I don't do good on this test and I might be able to pull up my grade. And if I can't pull up my grade, then my GPA will go down. If my GPA goes down, then how will I be able to pull it up? 
with my next semester classes. Oh, I have a hard class next semester. What if my grade still keeps on going down and my GPA never pull it up? I just kind of spin off and keep on just going down. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that happen. Yeah. <laughs> and it can be a very lonely feeling. It feels very isolating. There's a tendency to feel like I'm the only one that feels this way. And that, that also reinforces that, well, if I'm the only one that feels this way, then I certainly can't talk about it because now I'm weird or something's wrong with me. And there's also some shame in just being able to admit that to yourself, that I'm suffering and I just don't want other people to see it. And I think, too, one of the messages that high achievers send is like the desire to not be needy or high maintenance. Mm-hmm. I know for me, I take pride in being able to solve my own problems. And, you know, I think there can be times when if I've had to ask for help or I'm tempted to ask for help that I feel like, gosh, I'm messing up here. And that that is lonely. And it's not healthy. It's not keeping you connected because people do want to help you. People love you. You have all of us have family and friends and people who really would be happy to help us if we were struggling with something. But if we can't take that step of letting them know and being vulnerable, then we can stay in that place of isolation a lot longer than we need to. Right. Right. Very good point. So if we think about high achievers and how oftentimes they exist in this place for a long time, you know, like it's really chronic for them. Mm -hmm. If you think about long term what the impact is on them as far as their relationships, what external behavior that they convey, like what do you see when you work with your clients and this is a pattern that's existed for a long time, like how do you know, like what characteristics are you seeing? It's tricky to be able to diagnose because so many are suffering in silence, but it's important to get a good inventory of how you feel when you're good and how you feel when you're suffering. And being able to mediate that throughout your life is an imperative skill to be able to establish and maintain health. So the, the high achiever who's been suffering for a long time, a good way to be able to, to notice that is that it typically manifests physically. So you're not going to see it necessarily on the outside and they're not going to necessarily verbalize it, but it will start to manifest through things like stomach aches or headaches. It might start to affect their sleep patterns. It's either hard to go to sleep, hard to wake up, or the, the sleep is restless. They're constantly in a rush. So it's imperative for parents to be asking your, your teen questions. You know, how, how are you feeling physically? Not just how, did, how was school today? Uh, did you get your homework done? How are you feeling on the inside? Are, are you having aches? Are you having pains? Or are you taking care of yourself? Are you eating well? Are you exercising? How are your social relationships? Because when we invite that in, we establish a safe space to have a dialogue about what's happening to them from a holistic standpoint. I think it's really easy for parents to get stuck in this paradigm of just asking, how was your day? And getting back to their busy lives and what's going on with them. And it's also important to, to look at how this manifests in relationships. So the, the high achiever, as we said, tends to be the peacekeeper, the one that people tend to come to them often, they rely on them, they're going to get exhausted. So oftentimes when they have realized it's a problem, it's because they've been overextended and they're burnt out. So that's also a hallmark of the long-term consequences is I've just, I've hit this wall. I've had a long fuse for a long time, but I just can't do it anymore. And I feel like I'm going crazy. 
and I just need some help. I see that with both parents, especially parents who have kids who are struggling with something, whether it's their school performance or behavior or a health concern, and they're doing caretaking, 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 caretaking. They don't have self-care or maybe they don't have enough support from a partner. And then they're in my office, like falling apart. Mm -hmm. You know, they feel like they can't do it all. They feel like they're failing. They are sending themselves negative messages. They don't know how to ask for help. And they don't really see that there's a place for this to get better. Right. So I see that in parents. And then I see teens where they get overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden, whether it's crying kind of meltdown or I'm going to quit the soccer team Mm -hmm. or I'm going to dump my boyfriend or something like that. And it's not really related to the relationship. It's just sort of them trying to clear their plate to be able to see the forest through the trees. And so sometimes they can approach it like a burn down the whole house sort of thing, looking for relief. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point that if a child has been involved with a certain activity or sport for a long time, and all of a sudden they, they don't want to do it anymore. Sometimes that's typical. Sometimes that's developmentally appropriate. They've just kind of aged out of it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. Maybe they are overwhelmed. Maybe they do have too much on their plate and they're in a shutting down mode. So it's important to look at all aspects of what's going on with them. How, how's the schoolwork going? How's the engagement with friends, engagement in hobbies, engagement with family? Look at everything that's going on and have that that space to have a full open conversation about what's going on. Because that's one of the things about the the high achieving teen is that they really do want to talk. They really do want to be heard and they have a lot to say. They're very analytical thinkers. They think very deeply. They have a tendency to overthink. Sometimes it's just a matter of asking the right question and at the right time in the right way. And sometimes it's just inviting them to be on a podcast. (laughs) Yeah, I, I I mean, I relate to all of this as a parent and as a person. And the other day, Anna and I were talking and she right now we're in kind of shutdown mode because of COVID. And she has an amazing ability to keep herself busy. She's got a schedule. She built an exercise and time with her brother and what she's doing with the dog. And she's got schoolwork set aside. And then we've been podcasting together. And she has like a super full day, despite the fact that right now she doesn't have any extracurricular activities or extremely extensive school demands. Mm-hmm. And the other night, I I don't know what I fussed at you about, something like scooping cat litter. And you were like, Mom, like I spent so long making dinner. <laughs> and she kind of listed all these things that I was like, wait a second. Like, were those adult responsibilities that over time she's eased into doing mm. because she's home? And I had this moment of like, gosh, is this fair to her? And I said, honey, you have to tell me, you have to tell me if like, you feel like it's too much. Like I actually can make dinner. Like I've done it in the past. I can do it again. Right. And she's like, but I, but I like making dinner, you know? So she was wavering between feeling overwhelmed with all these tasks she was doing and all of them are important things and being able to say, no, you take some of this back or, or even if it's just for a day or two. And so I wanted her to hear me assure her like, you can speak up. And that was about, I felt, her setting the boundary of letting me know when making dinner stopped being fun and became a chore. Yeah. So what do you you remember that conversation, Anna? Yeah. So what did you think at the time? I mean, some of like the tasks I do, they're enjoyable to me. Like I enjoy exercise, but I feel like more of the tasks that I dread doing. And then when 
kind of procrastinate them. And then when they all pile up and I get overwhelmed because now I have to do something that I don't like doing and there's so much of it to do, then I start feeling really overwhelmed. Yeah. And I always want you to communicate that. Yeah. So, like, we can problem solve together. Mm -hmm. Because I also don't want to take you for granted as being a competent woman. (laughs) You know? Like, I don't. I don't want that dynamic to evolve where, you know, you have the curse of the competent woman and I do. Mm-hmm. And the boys are sitting back watching TV. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Anna, you make a good point that not all aspects of being a high achiever are bad. It, it's really important to give some good attention to the fact that there's so much good that comes out of this. We're able to be very productive. We accomplish a lot. We're very successful. That feeds the self-esteem. And just like you were saying, I like those things. I like doing tasks. I like having a schedule. It makes me feel good. So yeah, I think it's important to recognize that being a high achiever and having anxiety is not a bad thing. It's not. It's when it starts to wear on you and you're not able to manage it, that it starts to become a problem. Mm -hmm. Ashley, do you consider yourself a high achiever with high achieving anxiety? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So we got three of us sitting here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, any last thoughts, Ashley, you want to make sure that that Anna hears or parents out there who are listening or teens who are listening that we want to convey to them? Yeah, I think just reemphasizing the importance of having that open, honest communication with that high achieving child and not making the assumption that just because they're not showing the symptoms that they're not suffering and digging a little deeper is okay. It's warranted. It's needed. Cause like I said, they, they really do want to talk. Typically speaking, they really do want to talk. It's just being able to create the environment that's safe enough that you, you're using a good tone of voice and that you're being inviting and warm and welcoming to allow them to, to be able to express themselves, but also trying to be a good model of those things yourself, that if you're taking care of yourself and you're speaking up and expressing your opinions and you're saying no and setting good boundaries, that's one of the best things that we can do because your children are, are seeing what you are doing far more than what you are saying, especially teens. Because as we are trying to give them instructions or give them advice, oftentimes it's in one ear and out the other but they are looking at what you are doing all of the time. And they will absolutely recognize if they're not seeing you do what, what it is you're telling them to do. Yes. And also you have to teach your kid how to check in with themselves because some of them don't even know how to do it. And a lot of times with high achievers as parents, I see parents who almost every word they exchange with their child is about some sort of task completion. So did you get your history project done? Did you scoop the cat litter? Did you talk to your friend about whether or not you can get a ride home from practice? And there isn't a lot of like downtime, jokes, storytelling, just connection that isn't related to something that needs to be achieved. Mm -hmm. So I know in my work, when I look deeper into the nature of that relationship and I figure out like 90% of your your interactions with, with your child are related to school or college applications or some sort of task, like that can really erode the relationship. So sometimes one of the ways that I encourage parents to manage their kids' anxiety is to spend some time rebuilding that relationship so it doesn't just consist of sort of like a transactional, I'll give you a ride if you go ahead and watch your brother for half an hour. I've seen that really help the child learn to relax and like be present in the moment 
Mm -hmm. and enjoy family dinner or whatever it is, instead of just sitting there eating their dinner so they can get back to their homework. Yes. And I love the point that you made about teaching them to be able to check in with themselves. That's very valuable. And you're so right that that's a skill. And we can't make the assumption that a child or shoot, even an adult is able to do that. It's, it's a skill that must be taught. And being able to, to be self-aware, to develop discernment, what's good for me, what's bad for me, what do I like, what do I not like, and, and being able to have the confidence to stick up for yourself. Those are all things that can come out of being able to check in with you. And that's, that's really important because it's not the parent's job to regulate their child's emotions. It's the child's job to do that. But it is your job to, to check in and make sure that they're doing that. Now, I know that, Ashley, you work, like this is a specialty area of yours, to work with women in particular who struggle with this type of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you do that. I know you're a therapist. I also know that you do coaching work. You know, what's the best way for someone to get access to you if they need help in this area? I have a private practice, Blue Sage Counseling and Wellness in Charlotte, North Carolina. And at the practice, I provide mental health services for teens and adults. So those who are suffering with anxiety, depression, trauma, and in particular, the, the high achieving anxiety would come to me through the, the mental health private practice to receive therapy. And I also have a coaching business where I specialize in working with high achieving, anxious women who have been knocked off their game for whatever reason. So it could be the, the loss of a job, maybe going through a divorce or a breakup, any sort of significant event that has caused them to, to stop achieving. For the anxious high achiever, achieving is our oxygen. So yeah, I, working with these women, it, it's not only just the specific event, but sometimes it's also just not feeling like yourself. Maybe you used to be a lot more productive and high achieving in the past, but just over time that's eroded for whatever reason. Maybe you don't even know what the reason is. Well, I think motherhood could be a source of that, divorce, a death of a parent, some sort of significant transition. That's what I'm seeing. So in your coaching practice, you're able to support women from anywhere across the country. And is your services primarily provided online? Yes, it's exclusively online. So it would be virtual sessions. Okay. Well, I think that's really helpful to know that there's different modalities that can be used to tackle this issue. And each person can decide for themselves what is going to be the best fit for them. So, okay. Well, Anna, do you have any other thoughts or questions for Ashley about this um, topic? I don't think I do. Thank you for letting us interview you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. This was a really helpful interview, Ashley, and I really appreciate your time. For our listeners out there who are interested in finding out more about Ashley's services, please visit both of her websites. One is called bluesagecounselingandwellness.com, and that is her therapy website that's based here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And also for those of you who are interested in learning more about her coaching services, please visit ashleyfrancescoaching.com, and Ashley is spelled A-S-H-L-E-Y, and Francis is F-R-A-N-C-I. So we thank her for being with us today. And make sure to subscribe to our podcast. One day you'll thank me and stay tuned for our next episode. Love you, mom. Love you too, sweetie. Hello, this is Anna from One Day You'll Thank Me. 
We just wanted to let you guys know that we are looking for sponsors for our podcast. We've had a great response to our podcast so far, and we'd love to hear more about your product or service, especially if you have a product or service related to teens, parenting, or mental health. Please contact us at www.drterryegan.com. Hi, my name is Dylan, and I'm an occasional guest on My Mom and Sister's Podcast. One day you'll thank me. I just wanted to remind you to please subscribe and leave a comment. Thanks for listening.